Man, it's always a, it's a, just a joy to be with you guys this morning and, and pleasure and um, great honor to get to speak to you. I, like Alan said, I've known him for 22 years now, which is kind of crazy and feels awfully a lot like I'm getting old. Um, and I guess I am. And, uh, but, you know, I, got to, I remember conversations that we had when he was still in Mississippi and he was wrestling with whether or not he was called to plant a church. And remember a couple, I remember for some reason, I think I was buying paint one day. I, I don't know. I remember sitting in a parking lot, I think at like a Porter Paints or something like that. And we were talking church planning and you're like, I'm thinking about this. Uh, and then remember coming up early on, shoot that vision video when it was just an MC meeting at your house and got to teach a couple years ago on gospel fluency. And so I've gotten to watch little, little snapshots and snippets and hear about Haven Ridge all the way from the beginning. So, um, you know, for me, I'm just, I'm just super encouraged and, and love just to see how the gospel is being planted here in Greer and how disciples are being made through this church. And so I, I just want to say to you, like, you guys just keep, keep, keep on keeping on because uh, it's amazing. And there's just something about just like methodical, careful, gospel-centered discipleship. And to me, in the picture that emerges in my mind when I think of Haverhill Church is that. It's just slowly, there's this group, there's this family that's growing ever so larger, and more and more people are falling in love with Jesus and learning what it means to really walk with him and having their hearts transformed. And, and so that's awesome. And that's, that's really what it's about. So great honor and privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, when Alan and I were talking, we just, he said, you just want to preach something or you, you want to just preach in our series? And I said, yeah, man, just, just give me whatever's next and, and I'll jump right in. I like that because I get to learn new stuff. So we're, just, we're still in Philippians. So go ahead and turn to Philippians 4. And um, I'll remind you some background that you might know, but, um, you know, we're nearing here the end of this book that you guys have been studying, and this is a, it's a prison epistle, so Paul was most likely in Rome, and that's near the end of his life, and he's writing back to this church that he planted in Philippi, and you, you remember when, uh, when he planted this, this is where he got that Macedonian call, so he was on a second missionary journey, he and Barnabas had just parted ways over a disagreement, and he's kind of trying to figure out where to go and what to do, and he kind of tries to go in this area, and the Holy Spirit says no, and then he, he starts to go this way, and the Holy Spirit says no, and eventually he has this vision of this man in Macedonia going come, and so he ends up, and the first place he ends up is in Philippi, and he plants this church, and it was like a, a jailer and, you know, Lydia, woman selling purple, and, and uh you know, demon-possessed girl seemed to make up the beginning of this church, and so this church is planted, and however many laters, years later we are now, he's writing this letter, and if, if you remember, and again, this may be redundant, but it, it always helps me to remember the context. You know, Epaphroditus, who was at the church in Philippi, they knew Paul was in Rome in jail, and so they sent a gift, and so Epaphroditus is the one that carried the gift to Paul in Rome. So he's on house arrest in Rome, they bring some sort of financial gift to care for his needs. Somewhere either along the journey or once he get there, gets there, Epaphroditus gets super sick and nearly dies. And so Paul, now as he's writing this letter, Epaphroditus is recovered, but the church doesn't know that. And so he's sending Epaphroditus back home with this letter. And it's probably got all the stuff that it's got in it because Epaphroditus brought the word about, here's what's going on in the church. These are the issues we're dealing with. This is what's going on with the people. And so Paul writes this letter, Doctrine, and practical application says, this is what you need to hear 
from the Spirit. So he brings them this letter. And so they're receiving this back home with, with their homie Epaphroditus and, and are glad that he's okay and he didn't die because he came close to death, Paul says. Um, and so that's, that's, where, that's where we are. And so we're to the more practical end of the letter this morning. Let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're going to start with verse 2 through 7. So Philippians 4, 2 through 7. And look what he says. He says, and I, I'm going to try to pronounce these, these names right, but I'm not sure that I got them, to be honest. Uh, he, says, but, he says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, now, I, I think if we're not careful, uh, we, could, we could probably skip over this verse 2 and not even think anything about it, but that's really, for whatever reason, what the Spirit put on me, I think, for the, today. He says, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintuke or Sintike or however you say her name. These are two women. He says, I, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. So there's some sort of disagreement going on in the church. Um, there's this book, I haven't read it, um, but I think it's a cool example. But, but there's this philosopher writer named Nassim Nicholas Tlaib, and he wrote this book, he's written several books, but he wrote this book called Anti-Fragile. And what he, what he propounds in this book, Anti-Fragile, is that kind of peoples and systems and organizations, they can all be divided into three different categories. There's fragile systems and organizations, there's robust systems and organizations. And then he calls, there's this third category that he created called anti-fragile systems and organizations. So fragile things, that's pretty obvious. Fragile things are th things that when tension or stress or disagreements arise, they don't make it through. They break and potentially shatter and suffer damage as a result of conflict and stress and disagreement. There are robust organizations Robust organizations, they can weather the storm. They can suffer through and come out on the other side and they can survive stress and disagreements and conflict. But then he says there are also anti-fragile organizations. And anti-fragile fragile organizations and people, when stress or disagreements come upon them, they're actually better for having gone through that at the end. They don't just survive the stress and the disagreement. They actually get better as a result of having gone through the stress. So, uh, and, and you can kind of see this everywhere if you let your mind begin to think about it, but the human body, in a sense, is anti-fragile. You know, if, if you don't have a certain amount of stress on your muscles, they won't grow and develop. They actually won't even be healthy. Your bones, we know that you can develop osteoporosis quicker in your bones if your muscles aren't strong because those bones need a certain amount of tension on them or they're not going to grow and stay healthy.
healthy. So my wife uh, has had two ACL surgeries, and the first one, uh, she didn't go get surgery right away, and so I think it was like a month, right? Six weeks. Six weeks. So she, she tore ACLs a long time ago, and it took her six weeks, and then she finally got the surgery, and then after the surgery, they put her in a big brace, and she didn't start therapy right away. Totally different than the second one. Her second one, like the day pretty much that we that got out of the surgery, the orthopedic was like, we got to get you into therapy right now, get those muscles working. But the first one, they didn't do that. And I don't know all the reasons why, growth in medicine, better doctor, different circumstances. But that first one, because her muscles hadn't gotten used for months, really, the way that they should, they actually had to shock her muscles to get them to even begin to work again so that she could even start therapy because her muscles, her, her bones, they, they need some tension. They need some stress on them or they will not work correctly. So let me read to you this quote that I think is a little shocking uh, from Jeff Vanderstelt, but I think it's absolutely true. And I think it absolutely applies to every single church and MC and, and organization. And here's what he says. He says, conflict is not necessarily bad. In fact, no real change or development and growth will happen without some conflict. It's just absolutely necessary for sinful people living in, close prox- living in close proximity to one another to experience conflict because conflict is the evidence that either there is still something wrong with me or there's still something wrong with us and it needs to be addressed. That makes so much sense to me. Conflict is the evidence that I'm not perfect or we're not perfect and we're still needing to get better. And he says, and the beauty about conflict is that it brings that to the surface. And if we're devoted, and this is key, if we're devoted to helping each other grow up into Christ-likeness, we're going to expect conflict to happen, but it, but it can be a good thing. And so I just want us to examine the little bit of information we have about sin 2K and and Euodia this morning. And then I want us to think about, he, he commands a true companion. We'll talk about who we think maybe that is. He commands him to help them. And I want us to ask, what does it look like to come alongside of people when there's conflict in this body or in our MC and, and to help, let's do that in a gospel-centered and a healthy way. And then I think at the end, when he gives all these commands like rejoice and reasonableness, I think those, I don't think this is the only way they apply, but in light of this discussion this morning, I think Paul is giving us commands that help us get our hearts ready so that when conflict comes, we don't maybe fly off the handle or we don't maybe just melt or we, we're not shattered, but we, because we're strong in Christ, when this conflict happens, we can help others through it or, or we can be prepared to go through it in a way where we don't fly off the handle or where we're quick to repent when we do mess up. And so that's what I want to I just examine in this text this morning. And uh, I believe when I'm preaching along with you, like we're just all sitting under the authority of this word and we're learning from it. So the first thing, let's just, there's a conflict here. So he says, I entreat Euodia and, and her name, if you like transliterated what the meaning of her name means, success. So I entreat success and, uh, and he says, and I entreat Sintuke and her name means lucky. Uh, and uh, I remember when I was in seminary, my, my Greek professor, we, you translate Philippians in second year Greek, and he, he said he imagined these as like two old ladies, 
lucky in success, you know, with maybe some flowery hats, and they're having this disagreement, you know, so maybe that helps to bring it in, in your mind more. I don't know if that's what they were or not, but there's these two ladies, and, and what do we know about them? We know that they have a disagreement. We're, we know that they're both Christian women, right, because it says in verse 3, it says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's confident that these are ladies that know Jesus. They're saved. They're redeemed. They're Christian women. They're having this disagreement. And they, they appear to be kind of important or may, important women in the church. Maybe they were leaders in some sorts in the church, in some sense in the church. Uh, because they're co-laborers together with Clement and other people that have labored with him side by side. And then he says, um, or we can surmise, that this disagreement, because there's lots of issues that Paul's always addressing in all his letters, this agreement is probably not doctrinal in nature, right? Or if it is doctrinal in nature, it's probably a, a, a minor doctrinal issue. Because when Paul encounters serious doctrinal issues, he always says, hey, we need to understand, this is important, guys. I mean, he, this, is, this is Paul who confronted Peter, the apostle, to his face in front of everybody and said, your conduct's not in step with the gospel, bro. You're, you're being racist, essentially. In Galatians, he talks about this. You know, and in other places, he's, he's quick to point out, like, if there's a serious doctrine error, we got to deal with this, and we got to understand because it's the difference between knowing Jesus or not going, knowing Jesus, understanding the gospel or not understanding the gospel. That doesn't appear to be the case here because he doesn't mention any, he doesn't take a side, he doesn't even mention what this disagreement's about. So it's probably an issue of minor doctrinal, you know, importance at best or worst, or this is an issue of opinion, perhaps, or maybe this is an issue of uh, methodology. You know, we, we don't know. We're, we're surmising. But it's minor. It's minor. And at the same time, Paul thought enough about the issue to bring it up in the letter. Right? Because this is not a letter to Euodia and Syntyche. It, it's a letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul's not usually one to drop names like even when he's correcting evildoers and, and false prophets, he doesn't hardly ever mention names. But he mentions these two women by name in front of the whole church and he says, I, I urge you in the Lord, agree with one another. So it's probably a minor issue, but it's become a major issue. And he knows that this has the potential to hurt the church. And so he says, you, you guys, in the Lord... And that's what he says. He says he doesn't say, hey, in your own power, figure this out. You guys just shut up about that. I'm sick of dealing with this. He goes, no. There's two women that I love who've labored side by side with me who are important to this body. And this is a kind of a minor thing, I think. But, but you, you guys got to understand, you got to deal with this. This can't remain unresolved. It's affecting everybody and everything. Um, conflict is natural and normal but it does have to be dealt with. We cannot simply sweep everything under the rug. Um, it's also, and this is important, look how it words it in verse 2. This is just real striking when I was looking at the Greek. He says, he doesn't say, like the New Living Translation, I'm not trying to hate on it or anything like that, but it says, um, it says, uh, now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. You guys need to get along. 
That's not what the Greek says, and that's not what most of the translations, how they translate it. It's, he says, I entreat Euodia, comma, I entreat Sintuke. I'm not taking a side. It's not, you. he says, I'm urging you, comma, I'm urging you, agree in the Lord. Paul doesn't even take a side. He doesn't even tell us what it's about. He says, but you, you guys need to get with Jesus. <laughs> this fellow, this, this yoke fellow, that, I, that he, his, his companion, and we'll talk about that in a second, he says, you need to help these women, and they need, they need to agree in the Lord. I, you know, I recently um, was listening to a John Piper sermon that was kind of about this passage, but really more about the next part. And, but he, he told this story about being in his denomination. He was with a lot of the other leaders and they were trying to roll out, I think it was a big prayer focus for the denomination he was part of. And he says they were, and he said they prayed and began the meeting. It was kind of an all-day meeting. They're dealing with several things, but they're really trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do a, a massive prayer focus for all the churches that are throughout the denomination. And he says about four hours, he said they prayed and then about four hours into the discussion, he said, they got a whiteboard and they got all these ideas. And he's like, it just felt like they were banging their heads against the wall. They had good ideas, but they're like, I don't know if we should do this one or this one. No one could agree. No one knew what to do. And, and one of the guys there said, why don't, why don't we pause for a second and let's, let's just pray and ask God to help us. We'd already prayed. Let's pray again because we're, we're at a crossroads. We don't know what to do. I said, five minutes. Five minutes of prayer. So they opened their eyes. And this doesn't always happen. He said, but it, it was immediately apparent to everybody in the room, this is what we need to do. And I think it's significant that Paul says, I entreat Yodia, I entreat Sintuke, agree in the Lord. So the first thing I just want to throw out there is when a disagreement happens. And, and this is, they're going to happen. It's healthy for them to happen to a certain extent. In your MCs, they're going to happen. In this body, it's going to happen. People are going to ruffle feathers. People are going to have different opinions about how to raise their kids. People are going to be, you know, love different football teams, you know, like, and, and some of them are going to beat other teams. And, and you may have a, a, a quick, quick-witted remark here, and you didn't mean to make this guy mad, but it kind of did make him mad. And so, and they're, they're all the way from the super minor to the very serious. We were in a, a small group years ago, uh, Megan and I at our church, and there was basically a lady who had some kids, we found out later, with lots of serious issues and problems, and they just had no discipline whatsoever. And I was young and did not have kids and was not a parent yet, and we were leading this MC with all these couples that were older than us, and, and we were trying to figure out, this lady, we don't even know if she's saved, and she needs a lot of care, and she needs to be shown the love and the gospel. And we have all these Christian couples who are more mature in the faith, and they just want to kick her out because they're just sick of dealing with the child care issue. And we're in the middle trying to wrestle with what does it look like to put in place some parameters because the group can't function with kids just going, you know, AWOL, and at the same time to love this lady in such a way that she doesn't feel like the church has rejected her you know, and it was a gospel moment. And, and MCs and churches, they're, they're full of the, that. That's, that's what it's about almost. The rubber meets the road when something goes wrong and then you have to work through it in a gospel-centered way and to correct and discipline and love and to challenge people who just want a comfortable 
you know, group to go, sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes there's issues. We're all broken, you know. Um, so, so that's the issue, and we need God's help. Look at what he says in verse 3. Again, I ask you also, true companion. This is singular, so he's not talking about the church. He's talking about somebody that he doesn't name. Help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel. And um, I read a lot. I mean, this, this could be Timothy or this could be Epaphroditus. I mean, he's sending Epaphroditus back, but that seems kind of weird because they're with him when he's writing the letter. That doesn't seem to make the best sense of the passage. It could be an elder in the church. I mean, we don't know, honestly. It could be an elder in the church, but there was more than one, and he doesn't say which one, so that seems kind of weird. So um, when I was reading Gordon Fee, one commentator, he suggested, and it made a lot of sense, that this may be Luke. Because Luke, when you're reading Acts, and we won't go into it, but it actually happens in verse 16, right around the planting of Philippi. It's really cool. When you're reading in Acts, it's all Paul and his companions did this, and then this happened, then this happened. And then in in chapter 16, it changes from they did this to we did this. And we know that Luke wrote Acts. And so at some point in Paul's missionary journeys, Luke joined him. And it was right around the time that Philippi was planted. So he very well may be appealing to Luke here, who was definitely at the church at Philippi at some point and probably may have been there for several years helping them. And so I'm going to assume it might be Luke, but we don't know for sure. But he says, I want you to help these women. And so he doesn't say how that works. So I just wanted to play a bit of a, pull out of Ben's imagination. What would it look like when, when disagreements happen, what does it look like to come alongside people and to help them through them in a gospel-centered way? And the first thing that, I, that came to mind was what Jesus says in John 17. And he prays for our oneness. So he says, John 17, verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, the, the these is the apostles, but also for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that uh, you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus says our oneness, our ability to work through conflict and love each other and to agree in the Lord is actually a picture to the world of the gospel. And so just at the very beginning, how do we help those who are in disagreement? How do we deal with it when it arises? We, we pray. We pray for God's oneness. We say, Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, we, we need your help in this situation. We need you to help change hearts because we can't change hearts. You need, we need you to help bring together minds so that they can see the point of view of the other person and, and so that we can go, okay, I understand how you feel and I'm hearing you. And so wh- where do we go from here? So we, at the baseline, I kind of already said that, but we, we pray. Number two, we help them see that it's important, right? Matthew 5, and you guys, I think, studied this last year, Sermon on the Mount. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's kind of crazy because the where they would have offered their gift at the altar would have been the temple and not everybody lived right next to the temple. 
So what if it's you who just traveled 10 miles on foot all day to come to the temple, to slaughter your sheep, to offer your offering to God, and you're there to worship, and that's how they knew how to worship and ask for forgiveness. And, and you're there, and then the Holy Spirit of God convicts you and says, you have something, your brother has something against you. Jesus says, go through the hard work of leaving your gift, perhaps traveling back the 10 miles to where you came from, dealing with the issue, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and worship. In a sense, our worship is inhibited if we're holding on to grudges, if we're not working through conflict. We cannot worship the way that God desires us to worship if there's constantly something that we have against somebody else. If there's tension that we're not worked through. Not all tension can be worked through in a day, but we need, we need to make, do the hard work. Realize that it's important to go, we gotta do everything we can do to get through this so that we can love each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if that means traveling back 10 miles. So we need to help people see this importance. So we may need to, you know, if, if conflict is ongoing in your MC or in your church, you, you may need to be the one that steps up and goes, I'm not taking a side, <laughs> but I want to help y'all. We, we got to deal with this. This has got to be resolved. Thirdly, um, we have to be willing to involve ourselves in the conflict in an impartial way, if necessary. And here's where I see that, Matt, Matthew 18. And this is the classic kind of church discipline passage. You guys, I'm sure, sure are familiar with this, but Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. When I, when I was listening to uh, Jeff Vanderstelt talk about this passage, he said, um, he said that means that the, the two or three witnesses you grab, they, they're impartial. They're not just by default on your side. So you've got, you've got a beef with your brother and you went to him and it didn't get resolved. And so you go, man, we got two or three. Don't necessarily pick the two or three that are definitely gonna agree with you. Pick the two or three that are gonna maybe see his point of view easily or that really love him. Get some impartial guys who can come in and go, let's just make sure we understand the situation. Because it says so that all the, uh, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you, so you bring some impartial folks, and this is where we, as we're helping, we have to be willing to involve ourselves in the conflict and go, I, I don't really want to take a side, I don't really want to deal with this, but I realize this is serious, and so I will involve myself in this conflict, even though it has nothing to do with me. Because I realize this is important to the body. Um, and so you have to be willing to involve yourself. And, and then it goes on and says, you know, if they won't listen to that, then bring it to the church. And this can be a, a serious sin issue when you get to that point of view. And, and I'm not so much talking about church discipline today. Um, but the point throughout this whole passage is not to just like nail somebody like, you were wrong, we knew you were wrong, we're amping it up, here you go, we're about to kick you out. The, the thrust of this passage from Jesus is we're gonna take every possible step we can take to give grace and to give grace and to give grace while at the same time holding accountable so people don't just get to do whatever they want, but we're gonna give them every opportunity in the world to receive grace and to repent. Why are we doing that? Because when you are a redeemed child of God and you realize that your sin 
is just as great as their sin. And that you've been given much grace. And that you're not all that in a bag of chips. But you're actually a faulted, frail human being who's been loved extravagantly by God, then you can go in and go, they don't deserve it, but I didn't deserve it either. And so I'm going to show them extravagant. We're going to go to the end as, as much as we got to again and again and again, while at the same time not letting them pass by on their sin, but we're going to deal with this, but they, they're going to have every opportunity to repent. Jeff uh, told an I obviously listened to a, a video of Jeff Vander still talking about conflict, <laughs> but this isn't wholly from that, but I gained a lot from it. But he said he was one time in his neighborhood hanging out with a bunch of people, and a lot of them not Christians. And some of the neighbors began to kind of talk bad about this guy in their neighborhood who actually was a Christian, but they all agreed was a jerk. <laughs> and he didn't much mass ask, uh, act like it. And so he wasn't part of Jeff's church or anything. And so he said some of the neighbors began, man, what's wrong with that guy? And kind of started getting on him. And, and he just, he said it went for a second. He just stopped. He said, hey, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with everything you're saying, but th this guy's not here to defend himself. Let's just not, let's not talk about him. And uh, he said like a day later, one of the ladies came up to him and was like, why would you defend that guy? And his perfect gospel-centered response is like, well, there's this accuser before God who's constantly accusing me, and I have an advocate who stands up for me when I'm not there and defends me before the Father. His name is Jesus. And he said over time, as his neighbors began to realize that they were going to be the family that wasn't going to talk bad about everybody, it opened up more and more avenues for people just to share their lives and their frailty, and their mistakes, because they knew, you know, Jeff and, and Janie Vanderstelt are not going to talk bad about them. They're not going to judge them, um, because they've been shown much grace, so they know how to show much grace. Um, so yeah, we got to be willing to involve ourselves in conflict. I, I recently, uh, my, my boss, uh, lead pastor at my church, uh, Chris, he, he had made a couple remarks that offended me. And you, sometimes I, I'm often in this space where I'm going like, okay, it's, it's, the glory, it's the glory of God to like overlook an offense. And so sometimes I'm in this place where I'm like, do I, is this like, I'm a little offended. Do I just need to overlook this and not make this a big deal? Or like, was it significant enough, whether it's me or him, that like, we got to deal with this. We gotta, I need to bring this to light. And so sometimes, and you just, I would just say, sometimes you don't know and, and ask the Holy Spirit for help. Like, do I just need to like, yeah, he kind of offended me. He probably didn't do anything by it. So I'm just, I'm not even going to bring it up. I love him. I'm going to move on. Or is this like, no, there's some things there and we got to chat about it so that we can move on. And so I was kind of there with Chris. He had made a couple of remarks that kind of offended me. And so finally, just the Holy Spirit made it really clear. You need to go talk to him. And, and I just want to encourage you and just say, it was a, it was a five minute conversation. I said, hey man, you've offended me a couple times and I just feel like I need to bring it up. And I said, it was here and here and he, he didn't even remember that it had happened. So it obviously wasn't in any way him trying to offend me or say anything. And I just, you, maybe you experienced this before, but just the weight that lifted off my shoulders when I immediately just said, hey, this happened. He said, dude, I'm sorry. I don't even know when that happened. I didn't mean anything by it. And then immediately 
it's like my world changed. It's like all this bitterness that was beginning to build up and to fester and to, and to screw me up and to make it hard for me to walk with Jesus was just, it was just gone because we, we dealt with it. And so I, I just want to encourage you, sometimes you, you need the Holy Spirit's help to know what to do, but be willing to involve yourself in the conflict. Be willing to have the tough conversation because, man, the peace, the peace that comes to going, all is forgiven and, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we love each other and we're putting that behind us is, is worth it. Um, now, so that's that. So now verses four through seven, Paul gives all these commands kind of at the end of his letter. And I think we're gonna look at four things. I think he's teaching us what it would look like for us to safeguard our hearts right, to, to walk with Christ in such a way so that when conflict inevitably comes, when uh, offense inevitably comes, we're, we're in a good place to either deal with it or to go, not a big deal. I know they didn't mean anything by it. I'm, I'm just, I was a little offended, but I'm moving on. Or when there's a blow up in our MC, we're, we go, I think I got to help in this. I got to make, I got I to gotta help them through this. And we're in a good place to be able to do that in a healthy way. I think these commands help us know what that would look like. So let's read again verses four through seven. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So rejoice, the first one. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So be be. Strive to be in Christ the type of person who's infinitely reasonable. Everybody around will look at you and go, that's a reasonable, level-headed sort of person. He says, the Lord is near. That's kind of weird, but it's stuck in there. He goes, remember, the Lord is near. And then he says, and do not, or the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let thanks, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he says, rejoice. He says, be reasonable. He says, remember that the Lord is near. He's at hand and, and pray, being praying people. And I, I really believe that if we do these things, we're, we're prepared to deal with conflict when it arises. We're the sort of people that can, that can do work or that can get things resolved. Um, why do I think that? Well, Rejoice in Jesus. It's, it's actually a command, right? This is kind of weird, right? And the Bible does this a lot, and John Piper talks about this a lot, and it's helped me. But he, Paul says, I want you to rejoice. It's a command in Jesus. He didn't say obey Jesus. He says it elsewhere. But here he says rejoice in Jesus. So it's not just like, hey, you need to do some moral stuff because that's what it means to follow Jesus. He says, no, here's what it means to follow Jesus. You're happy with him. You see him as delightful and worthy and and worth, he's the pearl of great price. He's worth selling everything you have so you can buy the field so that you have the pearl. You know, like he's, you're, you're to, we're commanded to feel emotion towards Jesus. And if we do that, how could we, how could we get bogged down? And I mean, if we're constantly rejoicing in Jesus, how, how, how can we get bogged down too much in disagreement and conflict? Here's the way I was thinking about it when I was preparing. You're, you're at work and you're having a tough day. Like everybody's annoying you at work and there's all kinds of drama everywhere and you're, in, you're, you're tempted to involve yourself in it or to get drugged down or to let it affect your emotion. But at the end of the day, you know you're leaving to go to the beach on vacation. 
And so it's like, you know, this day at work really kind of stinks, but I'm going to the beach. And so I'm not worrying. I'm not going to get bogged down. I'm not going to let this affect my mood because there's something better awaiting me. Right? Doesn't that work? I'm not going to get drugged down into this conflict or, or this stress unnecessarily because there's something far better that my heart is set on. Because I'm rejoicing in Jesus. It, it reminded me very much of the C.S. Lewis quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. And sometimes we're drugged so quickly into conflict and stress because we're not actually happy in Jesus. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing, he says, be reasonable. And, and when I read all the commentators, this sort of reasonableness is, is the sort of willingly self-sacrificial reasonableness that Paul has already taught about in Philippians. So earlier in Philippians, he says, do not, in chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not oh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So be reasonable. What does he mean? He means be the sort of people that regularly put others ahead of you. Count their interests and their concerns as more important than your own. Um, there's, there's a certain type of, uh, I don't know, person, and it seems to be men in the caricature, caricature in culture, uh, you know, the man that just flies off the handle all the time. We see him in sitcoms and he's kind of funny. You know, and Paul's saying, don't be that guy. Be the guy that's infinitely reasonable and everybody knows he's reasonable. He's reasonable. Um, Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is this, that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. So I'm infinitely screwed up, and it's not, I'm, because here's what goes on in my heart often. Here's my, my sin struggle, one of them. I, I really think I'm a little bit smarter than everybody else. I really think I got it a little bit better together than a lot of other people. Maybe I'm not as athletic as I wish I could be, but as far as like thinking through things, I'm smart. I got to figure it out. And so when I, I'm very tempted just to believe everybody else is kind of an idiot all the time. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm laying it on the table. And I have to regular, the gospel to me, that the part of it that I have to regularly remind myself of, maybe this is not your struggle, I'm just admitting it's mine, is remembering like, no, I am in desperate need of mercy and grace because I'm a fallen man who could not inherit heaven for a second without the work of Jesus Christ. 
without his death to forgive my sin and his life. He lived the life I couldn't live that's given to me. It's imputed to me in my place. His resurrection that gives me new life. His spirit that empowers me so I don't have to be that guy anymore. I need all of that. I don't have it all together. I really am like really screwed up. And so I, I got to constantly remember that or, or I'm not reasonable, you know? And so you, the gospel may hit you in a different way, but you got to figure out like, what's your bent? You know, we all fall into like, like we tend to be confronters really easily. Like I love confrontation. And so you're like, hey, let's do it. Or, or you tend to be like, I don't, I want to avoid confrontation at all possible costs. And both of those are gospel issues, right? So if you're, if you're a confronter, it can be very similar to what I just described. You're prideful and you think that you're right, so you, you don't mind confronting people because it's really just going to be about you showing them that they're an idiot and that you're right. And so it's not going to be hard. And so you're like, hey, hey, hey. And you probably got a pride issue because you think you're all that and you're not. You're really actually a person desperately in need of grace. But if you're a runner, it can be a similar issue but different. Because if you're always running away, if you're never willing to run into conflict, if you're always avoiding, 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 it could be that you want everybody to think good of you. You want everybody to be your friend. And you're so scared of somebody not liking you that you're unwilling to address a hard issue because your identity is actually not resting in Jesus. It's resting in you and what everybody else thinks of you. And so you're unwilling to involve yourself in the conflict because because it's, un, it's it, ugh, I don't, ugh, it just feels bad. I don't want to be a part. I don't want to make anybody upset. I want everybody to think I'm uh, to like me. And they've got this serious issue, and you're actually not loving them well because you care so much about yourself because you want to feel good. And so, like, con, like we got to figure out. You're probably in one of those two categories, and there's some subtle differences and in-betweens and all that. But we need help with the Spirit of God to go, is this something that we got to involve ourselves in and solve? And then what's my bentness? And, it, and am I really being true to what God's called me to? Or am I running away? Or am I loving conflict and always running towards it? And, and what's that say about how well I'm believing the gospel right now? Um, the third thing is we got to remember that the Lord is near, right? So this, this is kind of, what is he... It either means, here's what Gordon Fee says. He says, here's what we got to tease out. Does he intend, rejoice in the Lord always and let your gentle forbearance be known by all for the coming of the Lord is near? Or does he mean, because the Lord is always near, do not be anxious about anything, but let your request be made known to God? Or does he intend a bit of both? And I, I don't know. I, I think both sounds good. The Lord is coming and the Lord knows everything and is always near to us. And so, so how do we guard our hearts? We, we guard our hearts and prepare ourselves to deal with conflict in a healthy way by realizing that the Lord is near. Um, this, I'm not going to read that. I feel like that's going to take us off into a direction that we don't need to know. We just need to remember that God knows what's up. He's going to vindicate and make everything right. We don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to always be right. We don't have to make every situation right and exactly be thought of as the perfect person in this situation because God knows what's really up. So we don't, we don't have to defend ourselves in every single situation. You know what I mean? The Lord's near. He's going to make it right. He's near to the brokenhearted. He knows what's going on in this situation. Last thing is that we pray and ask God for help. He says, 
do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, which is a specific type of prayer, it's a request prayer. He said, with, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the fourth way to safeguard our hearts is to pray. Um, Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They, they don't sow or reap or, or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a, a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles all seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's near. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so how do we, how do we prepare our hearts to deal with conflict? Well, we, we rejoice in the Lord, and we're, we're seeking to be reasonable, by the help of the Holy Spirit, and we're remembering that God is near and he, he knows everything, and so we don't have to settle the score because he's gonna settle the score. And, and then we pray and we realize that we're needy people and, and we need his help and we can't do it without him. And so he, he knows everything that we need, but he desires for us to, to cry out to him in prayer and to expect his help. First John, this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. And verse seven says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have this promise of peace if we do these things. And so I, I just, by way of kind of concluding, let me, let me ask you, a couple questions. Let me, let me read you the Jeff Vanderstelt quote again because I think it's good. And let me ask you a couple questions. Jeff, again, it's absolutely necessary for sinful people living in close proximity with one another to experience conflict because conflict is the evidence that either there's still something wrong with me or there's still something wrong with us and it needs to be addressed. And the beauty of conflict is that it brings that to the surface. Conflict is absolutely a chance to speak gospel truth to one another. It's a chance for us to grow in Christ-likeness. Satan means it to destroy us. He means it for it to wreck the church. But in God's sovereignty, what Satan means for evil, God means for good. And so God is giving us opportunities to gospel one another and to be united and one in Christ Jesus. And so I don't know what's going on with anybody, but let me just ask a couple concluding questions. And maybe the Spirit's going to grab one of these and say something that he needs to say to you. Um, is, is there, first one, is there disagreement or conflict right now that you are in some way involved with? It could be at work, it could be at church, it could be in the family, it could be extended family. If so, what is God leading you to do about it? Where, 
when, here's another question, when conflict arises and it doesn't involve you, are you committed to helping others deal with their conflict in a godly manner? Because it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of you for this church to thrive and to glorify Jesus when conflict arises in the way that God intends. Okay, and then kind of the fourth question, do, do, you, and, do you tend to run towards confrontation? You love, to, you love it, let's run into it, or do you avoid it at all costs? And if so, how does the gospel challenge you in your tendencies? So I just want to leave you with that. And I don't know how it may apply, but I'm assuming it applies. Because <laughs> it definitely applies to me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, I pray right now um, not that people remember anything I said so much, but Father, I just pray that as we, we've looked at this word, I trust, Holy Spirit, that you are moving and convicting. And I pray that you would just move in these few moments. And God, if there's stuff uh, with the people in this room and they need to deal with it, I pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to deal with it. And Father, I pray that maybe there's nothing going on or maybe it's outside of this body and this body is good. But inevitably, God, as people who are sinful, both us and new people that are going to come in, God, as they come in, it's, it's going to challenge us. There's going to be tough situations. We're not always going to know what to do. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage everyone here so that when that stuff does happen, that they, they would not just fly off the handle about it or that they would not run from it, but that, but that we would be people, Father, who want to deal with conflict in a way that would glorify Jesus, in a way that everybody would feel loved and heard, but in a way that would challenge us to holiness. And so, Father, would you, would you help this body? Would you help them to be those sorts of people? Father, when they hear something, help them not to, not to want to gossip about it or join in the talk. Yeah, that person drives me nuts, but, Father, help them to be the sort of people that would say, no, this is, we need to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to divide the body. I want to be about uniting the body because this is Jesus' body. And so, Father, would you just challenge us and speak and help us? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.